I'm going to turn myself down. That's good. That's better. All right. You are um, F. Gary Gray. F. Gary Great. Uh, Am I right? Uh, Am I right? Uh, yep. All uh, right. I'm counting us down now. In three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Missing Out. If this is your first time hearing an episode, what we do here is we introduce each other to different stuff, and then we talk about our first impressions and our, uh, what do they call that, nostalgic impressions. Uh, we're retrospective with introspective. That's catchy, I like it. Thank you. Uh, we're on iTunes, and we're also on Podbean. Um, if you're listening to us on iTunes, take a little time to give us a, give us a rating. Five stars would be awesome. Uh, leave a comment below so other people know how awesome it is and why it's awesome. So you can justify your five stars. So you can be like, oh my gosh, five stars. And because they're funny, and then people will go on to iTunes and be like, oh my gosh, they are funny. And do the same. It'll be like a never-ending cycle of five stars and they are funny. I like that story. Thank you. It has a happy ending. There are ups and downs. I feel like I went through an emotional journey that paid off in the end. It always does pay off. Uh, and today we are going to be talking about Blade Runner, but before I guess we should probably say who we are because yeah, we haven't done that yet. I'm Tari J. Miller, uh, and you are? I am Lex Michael. Ooh. To the best of my knowledge. Hi, Lex Michael, to the best of my knowledge. Hey. That's a long name. Is I, it hyphenated? It is. Uh, whenever I fill out a form, I always run out of space in the box. Mm-hmm. And it always runs over into the date. So then the date has to sit above the box, which is really confusing. If you've got to process it through the computer, it's going to confuse the computer. It's a real That's problem. That's true. You should probably go to the court and get that changed. Yeah. I can't go to court. Oh, you got warrants, bro. Got warrants. I got you. I got you. Got hey. warrants. Then warrants on 12 systems. Ain't no big deal. Ain't, ain't, ain't no big deal. Um, <laughs> so Lex, you recommended Blade Runner to me. I did. We, uh, are recording this episode at, at some point late summer 2017. And of course the, the long gestating sequel Blade Runner 2049 is due to open in theaters in October. It is directed by Denis Villeneuve, a filmmaker that I like a great deal. And it somehow came up in one of our conversations that you'd never really seen Blade Runner in its entirety. Right. And I said, well, I've been looking for an excuse to revisit Blade Runner uh, ahead of the release of Blade Runner 2049. Why don't we talk about Blade Runner? Now, the caveat being what version of Blade Runner do we talk about? There are famously, I believe, five different cuts of Blade Runner that are floating around. There's the original theatrical cut. There is the international cut. There is the director's cut. Uh-huh. There is the final cut, and there is the work print cut. Now, they're right. all available together. You could get like a five-disc Blu-ray set with everything, and then it's got like a giant three-and-a-half-hour documentary. That's what I've got. So, like, I watched the the final cut the other night, and now finally, this this Blu-ray's been sitting on my shelf for years. I started diving into, like, there's three commentaries on the final cut. So I think I'm through one and a half of them. Yeah. And then I'm going to just listen to more commentaries, check out that documentary. Just finally, as a, way to, as a way to do it. So I watched the final cut. And I assumed that you were also going to watch the final cut. I tried 
And uh, a certain streaming platform, I'm not going to name any names, but I might say that they're named after a rainforest. It's a jungle out there. Uh, only offered the theatrical cut. Um, you could probably get the you could get the final cut or the director's cut, but you had to buy a digital version, which I ain't about that business. Um, so I watched the theatrical version, which is the one that I hear everyone hates. Yes, when when Blade Runner first came out, uh, this this voiceover was infamously foisted upon them. Harrison Ford very, very much was vehemently against it. He said he was essentially dragged to the studio to record this voiceover kicking and screaming. Um, not written by the credited screenwriters of Blade Runner, whose names are Hampton Fancher and David Peoples. Hampton Fancher, by the way, fantastic name. It sounds like a name that I might make up. I have a thing where I make up super weird names on uh -huh. a pretty regular basis just because I think it's funny. And there's no joke there. It's just how ridiculous the name sound yeah like names like Jenton Trentley things like that uh Hampton Hampton Francher sounds like something that I would make up at like three in the morning and I'd send it to one of my friends and they'd wake up and be like what right though I'm a bigger fan of the name David Peoples because it sounds the most generic he's like oh man yeah his name's David uh uh you look around you see other people and you're like Peoples his name is David Peoples <laughs> what <laughs> um, but so uh, written by this this uh, voiceover was written by another uncredited writer. There are elements that are not included in the theatrical version that were later reinserted for the director's cut. And the theatrical version came out and was not initially all that well received uh, for a number of reasons. But then years later, the director's cut came out and that was the version I think a lot of people embraced, the version that dropped the voiceover and and like I said, added some elements that really not only change what the ending of the movie means, but also restructures the movie thematically. The story is suddenly, at least potentially, about something a little bit different. Interesting. Whereas the way the theatrical cut plays out, it's very much a story about a man who, among other things, falls in love with an artificial person. Yes. And it's how do we how do we reconcile my humanity with your lack of humanity or apparent lack of humanity? How human are you? They say the Terrell Corporation says more human than human, but of course it's like if you only have a four year lifespan, for example. How do we how do we conquer that hill? The director's cut and the later cuts that we see up through the final cut, which is more or less a, a slightly more polished version of the director's cut. The ending is a lot more ambiguous as far as whether or not Deckard himself is a replicant. Mm -hmm. And the story then becomes something a little bit different. It becomes more about this man discovering his own identity, the, the truth of which is buried somewhere in his subconscious. Interesting. So like, for example, I mentioned before we jumped on, I was like, oh, so you didn't see the whole unicorn thing. And you're like, what, the what now? Um, so if you remember, and you said this is... Now, full disclosure, I've never watched more than about 20 minutes of the theatrical cut. Yeah. I I really got into... I liked the director's cut. I found it I mean, years and years and years ago. The first time I saw it was on a borrowed VHS mm -hmm. of the director's cut. And I was like, whoa, this is neat. And then when the final cut was released theatrically, went and checked that out. And I was like, mm, yeah, I'm doing that that circle gesture, the okay gesture right. with my hand right yeah. now. The, the emoji, the okay emoji. That's the one I'm doing the emoji with my hand. Right. Hand emojis. Yes. It's depressing. Um, that was the version that really, that really hooked me. And so when I went back and watched the theatrical cut, um, I do think the, the voiceover helps. 
it helps make the movie feel like it's paced a little bit more quickly without the voiceover things scenes tend to play out and, and it feels a lot longer a lot more dreamlike right the voiceover though in in my opinion not very good um i would agree there are a lot of really weird um lines what's like, the one line the sushi line um yeah it's something like it's basically like sushi it's what my wife would have called me cold fish yeah that's and and i get what they're going for it's a very it's a neo-noir story and it has a lot of the tropes that you see in in all classic noir detective stories yeah and one of those is a a protagonist that a is a bit morally ambiguous and b you get this you get this voiceover this like very noir pulpy type of of monologuing yeah uh sometimes it works i don't think it really worked here um well so here's what the the voiceover felt like to me it felt like the maybe like an executive was watching the movie and it felt like there was something missing or they they were confused about something so they decided to they were like well why don't we fill in some gaps with a voiceover and really make sure to drive home the little subtleties that we're trying to put together in this film. Right. And, and I, I agree. It does feel that way. And the irony of course, is that it, it feels far more like it tramples on most of the subtleties that the movie has to offer. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are things that it clarifies, but for the most part, it tends to just, re-emphasize something that was said in a scene so there's like this there's a scene i think it's the picture one where he's uh he's telling uh rachel that she doesn't have real memories and then in the voiceover it's like replicants don't have real memories i don't know why they'd have pictures because all their memories are fake and you're sitting in the audience going oh <laughs> yeah that's what the last line meant mm-hmm. oh I, you have to i have to hear it twice right or i don't understand it yeah yeah it's like it's it's there to like double down on the idea that was real it was like underspoken and then he like double speaks it which is odd because i feel like in the in the director's cut and the final cut all of that stuff's really clear uh, yes, I feel like you could have effectively ignored the voiceover and still kind of got what it was happening. Though, I mean, I, I will say that we are probably more apt to kind of find the subtext in movies. So maybe to the casual viewer, they're like, I don't understand what the big deal is about these pictures. I don't understand what the big deal is about um, other stuff that was narrated. Like, it, it drops off midway through the movie. Um, except at the very end, which I thought was interesting. So, like, at the very beginning, I think that the the note was, ah, there's not enough setup here, so we can't move forward. And then at a certain point, they're like, all right, movie speaks for itself. That's my um, executive voice. I wonder if it's that or if it was Harrison Ford going, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving. I don't want to do this. No more, yeah. no more voiceover. Right. I mean, I don't... It, even in the reading, in his readings of the lines, there is a certain reluctance in them. Like you can, you hear it, and it, it's just like him reading off of a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> just just the occasional deep sigh. <laughs> yeah, like sushi. That's what my wife would call me. <sighs> Cold fish. <laughs> and I'd like to imagine that the director, like the voice director, was like, man, that sigh really added to the malaise of that line reading. Good job, Harrison. And he's like, 
I'll kill you. But okay, so you say they bring back the voiceover at the end. And the ending yes. in the theatrical cut, based on my understanding, is a much more optimistic ending. And so, all right, I'm talking about, I referenced the unicorn bit. Yes. So at the end of the theatrical cut, right, he finds the little origami unicorn that Gaff, the Edward James almost character, left outside of the apartment. Yeah. So, having never finished the theatrical cut myself, I wonder how that moment plays without the other, the context of the unicorn bit earlier, which is, Deckard is having dreams where he sees, essentially he sees a unicorn running through the woods. Okay. And Gaff leaving that origami unicorn, you could take it one of two ways. Some people suggest that it really has more to do with uh, underlying shared uh are you talking about like a like a hive mind shared? Yes, a thought? lot of a lot of people ha- can read into it one way, which is right. It's a bit of a, a shared, the collective unconscious shared concepts that exist in all of our minds somewhere, and it's it's a gesture of recognizing shared humanity. Okay. But a far more popular reading of it, and I believe this is the reading that Ridley Scott himself subscribes to, although he he waffles on this every couple of years, he changes his mind. It seems, but it is in fact that Deckard himself is a replicant. And Gaff somehow had access to his implanted memories, and that's how he made the unicorn connection. Interesting. Okay, so for me, the the origami piece had didn't really have any specific reference other than the fact that Gaff was there, right? Um, and so because he he left one in Leon's place as well. It wasn't a unicorn. It was just like a guy. It was like a dude with uh, the little like he's he's got a little origami dick. Yeah, and which so, I was like that's funny. It's like you really didn't need to make that of course part, gaff. But I I appreciate your attention to detail. Uh-huh. It's a little anatomically correct stick man. <laughs> just so you knew it was a stick man and not a stick woman. Well, it was also real. It was as big as one of the dude's arms too. Like it was it was almost the size of his entire torso. Is that not how dicks are supposed to be? That sounds exhausting. I don't know. I mean, that's how mine is. It's uh, it's true. It's the table is actually a full three feet off the ground. It's true because you're creating a, a what a lever effect. Yeah. Well, I mean, this movie really gets my decard. <laughs> it's entirely appropriate that you knocked the the screen off the mic in that moment. Yep. Oh, dang that joke. Ooh. Um, I think we're done here. <laughs> Um, but yes, so that scene to me, it only said that Decker or not Decker, but, um, Gaff knew that Rachel was at his place and let them be. So when it happens, um, the voiceover comes back and is like, Gaff knew that he was, that she was here and he let her go. And then they replay the part where Gaff goes too bad. She didn't ever live. Uh, that, that voiceover gets played at the end of the final cut as well. Got it. But okay, so that actually tracks then. It feeds into a more optimistic reading of that ending, whereas yeah. you don't get any more Deckard voiceover. I mean, you don't get any Deckard voiceover in the final cut. You get that moment of Gaff saying, it's too bad she won't live as they leave, but it seems like a far, potentially a far bleaker ending yeah. because it really does seem to tip heavily in the direction that it turns out Deckard is also a replicant. Now, how this... How we reconcile this with Blade Runner 2049, where we see a much older Deckard played by returning Harrison Ford, remains to be seen. I suppose it's possible that they went with a version of the continuity presented in the theatrical cut and built from there. I believe uh, Denis Villeneuve 
talked about how the theatrical cut was the version he originally fell in love with. Okay. But I think the other versions of the movie, which lean more into the Deckard as replicant idea, I, I think are the far more popular, more widely seen versions. Gotcha. So we'll see. It's entirely possible they go with, well, he wasn't a replicant after all. And it's, to me, equally possible they go with either he was a replicant, but maybe he was like a Nexus 8 like a okay. new version of it that maybe does age and live past the four-year lifespan. Or it's entirely possible that this Deckard lived for four years tops, expired, and later on they made a new Deckard who they made older for some reason. I mean, because old robots are cool. Yeah, um, you seen Terminator Genesis, bro? Uh, no, no one should have seen that. Um, so I have a question. Okay. Um, and I guess I have a comment and then a question. Um, the comment is... Since you hadn't seen the ending of the theatrical version, at the end of that, uh, the voiceover also comes back and he's he says um, that she was supposed to live for four years, but she was an exper- a new ex- an experiment, so she lived well beyond that. And oh, he doesn't okay, know so how they long. flat out state this. Yes. Okay, see, and this makes a lot more sense. So it's like, yeah, you could then say, again, because the, the replicants that we see in this story are all Nexus six. Right. Right. You could say that these are like the Nexus eight models, whether it's Rachel or Rachel and Deckard both. And then, okay. In the theatrical cut, you have baked right into it. You're, you're out your hatch essentially. Right. So my question is in the other versions, what are the clues that we get that, uh, that Deckard is a replicant? Because i noticed the one clue where she, asks him right before he passes out if he's ever taken the test and then you never get a response to that is there anything more than that or the big one is the unicorn thing okay i mean and then it recontextualizes a lot of what i'm sure you also see in the theatrical version but the biggest one is the unicorn thing okay Got i mean it. in my I, somebody listening is like you're dumb and wrong but the biggest <laughs> i think the most obvious one is certainly the unicorn yeah i would imagine if if gaff has knowledge that of something that Deckard has been experiencing without Deckard telling him, then that there is uh, an implication of something else or something bigger going on. Um, it would also explain why, like, it doesn't feel like Deckard has a a bigger uh, like past than than what we see. It feels like he just comes on the scene and he says he's he's quit twice, but like. There's nothing in his like apartment or anything in his life that implies that he's been doing things for a long time. Yeah, he's got in the original the source novel by Philip K. Dick to Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which I have not read myself, but I do know I be- I believe he has more of a backstory built in in the book. I believe he's got a wife. Uh, you get a little bit more rounded experience in in a way that suggests, at least based on the text in the book, he may not be a robot, but he may. Got it. But you don't get any of that. That's all stripped away in the movie. So you're right. It creates this picture of a guy who maybe just lives a a more stripped-down Spartan existence, which would be in keeping with a noir-type hero. Yeah. But it's entirely possible that he lives that way because this is all something manufactured. Yeah. Which which I think would be interesting because the— the idea of having a replicant that hunts replicants is fascinating. Yes. And it's not something that, like, I, it's not something that, I guess, has been mentioned to me in regards to this movie. Like, the things I've heard is, yes, I've heard the theory that uh, Deckard is a, a replicant. And I also hear that it's just an exploration of what it means to be human and what it means to be alive. Um, but, like... 
the other layer of using something against itself is also very fascinating because it implies that uh, Deckard himself is also a slave, just like the rest of the replicants. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if he if he is a replicant and he's put on this path, it was very much with purpose. And of course, if that's the case, he's not anywhere near as in control of himself or his actions as he believes, which is a pretty frightening concept to try right. and grapple with. Yeah. And it would also, in that context, make sense why um, why Roy saves him at the end. Because at a certain point, he realizes that Deckard is a, a replicant. Right. And, and it's, this, it's this reversal of the potential idea of shared humanity. In fact, it's the shared inhumanity that Roy Batty perhaps recognizes. Speaking of, all right, so Roy Batty is a, a truly fascinating character to me on a number of different levels, and I think Rudger Hauer's performance is is truly, truly uh, exquisite, if I if I may use a, a slightly flowery descriptor. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot going on with this guy. Apparently, he was the only person considered for this part. Uh, Ridley Scott had seen him in a bunch of uh, Paul Verhoeven movies that he had made prior to this. Okay. Um, the look... I think this, like, how he looks ever so slightly like Sting, I think was a bit of a surprise to everybody, but I think in hindsight it really, really works. I think, too, in the character of Roy Batty, you see uh, almost like the version 1.0 of a character we'll see far later in Ridley Scott's filmography, and I'm referring to David in Prometheus and Alien Covenant, a movie that I liked a great deal, and it seems like very few others did. But I think Alien Covenant especially feels like you took the themes of Alien and the themes of Blade Runner and smashed them together. Yeah. And of course, same filmmaker, the connections I think are very intentional. Uh, there's a moment where Deckard and Roy Batty are fighting, and Deckard takes a big swing at him, and he says, that's the spirit, and it's uh, a line echoed by David in mm -hmm. Covenant. So obviously, like, uh, Ridley Scott lampshading this ever so slightly. That was really more an excuse to bring up the fact that I like Covenant. <laughs> it's, um, it's a good—I uh, liked it as well. Just I want that to go on the record that I also liked it, Lex. It's probably why we started this podcast is we were like, you like Alien Covenant? And you were I like, like yeah. Alien Covenant. Sweet. It's Let's us against the world, bro. Movies. Yeah. So— you see, you see these themes that, again, Ridley Scott will pick up much later of man essentially playing God and, mm -hmm. and his creation, the, the fruit of his labors and attempting to play God ends up becoming in itself more, more godlike, more aware, more human than human, as the Terrell Corporation states. The level of perception that Roy Batty possesses and he seems unique in that way among the replicants that we meet yeah it makes perfect sense that they would look to him as the leader because it does seem like he's keyed in a little bit more than everyone around him mm -hmm. but but the level of perception he has that in my opinion vastly supersedes that of the average person uh, that's I think that enables him to to be as intimidating as he is to most of the human characters in the movie because he's seeing things on a level that they are not. Despite, there's that scene with uh, the James Hong character where he talks about, I designed your eyes. Yeah. Right? So, like, all of his individual parts were man-made, but Roy Batty, in a singular way, becomes so much greater than the sum of his parts. And he's mm -hmm. got that very famous, near the end of the movie, the Tears in the Rain speech, which apparently Rudger Hauer wrote himself. Oh, really? But this concept, and I find this a, a very moving concept, truly, this idea of uh, memories becoming just moments that are lost in the stream of time, like Tears in the Rain. Yeah. This is coming from your, your machine, your man-made machine character, and I think that's really interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, I it, his performance and his whole character really actually made me want to do like if they were going to do a sequel or like a a, a expansion they, they of are. this world. They're doing it. I mean, what I'm saying, like, it's got Ryan Gosling. What? It's also got Jared Leto. What? Where isn't that guy? Um, I mean, yes. So we're getting the the future of this world, but I would really like to see the world that Roy is experienced because in the four years that he had to have been alive, um, it it they make it seem like he has experienced more in the, those four years that, than any one man could experience in a whole lifetime. Well, I feel, in a way, I feel like that is a little bit what Covenant is about. Right. It's not the only thing Covenant is about, but I actually think that's very much a, a primary concern of that story. Mm-hmm. Is essentially, it really is. It's like if Ridley Scott were to make a Roy Batty movie that also happened to have the Xenomorph in it, I feel like Alien Covenant is what that would be and, in fact, is. Right. So, yeah. So, basically, he leaves uh, the planet that he's on, and then he's like, I should go back to Terra Prime Earth. And then he gathers his friend who's a pleasure bot, a worker bot, and a dancey bot. And then they all head like a, back to Earth. It's like a way less fun Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's, a, it's Guardians of the Galaxy if everyone really just wanted to live a normal life uh, and ended real sadly. Yes, and, yeah. n- and none of them like, like rock and tunes. Yeah. They just don't see the purpose. I don't know. I feel like Roy would like some rocking tunes. I feel like Roy would get very into classical compositions. I could dig it, yeah. Much like David does. I'm really glad that talking about Blade Runner is enabling me to speak about Alien Covenant. (laughs) I don't really get to talk about this movie very often because, as I said, I don't know that many people who enjoyed it the way I did. Yeah. Um, We're going to get so much hate, too. People people are going to listen and be like, you're dumb and bad because you liked this. um, Because it's the internet. If you'd like to do that... Please do it on iTunes, in the comments, and underneath a five-star rating. You just be like, this five stars is in spite of your love for Alien Covenant. Right. Uh, so give us five stars. Tell us how much you didn't like Alien Covenant. Uh, <laughs> tell us all of your issues. Uh, if you could, uh, write a bullet point for all five stars. Um, so like uh, bullet point number one, I don't like David. Bullet point number two, what was Danny McBride's deal? Bullet point number three, why would you slip in so in your own blood? Bullet number four, um, xenomorphs, why? Um, <laughs> you know, just stuff like that. Uh, if you could, below in the, in the comment section in iTunes. If you're driving, do it when you get home. Uh, if you're at home, if do you it wanna, now. If you want to live on the edge, man, I don't want to encourage texting and driving, but if you want to take it into your own hands, you, I can't. I mean, not... at, least, at least use talk to text. Yes, though. that's a good point. And then we'll be trying to decipher it later. Yes. And we'll say this. Uh, we're clearly using talk to text because this I mean, doesn't track at all. If if you use talk to text and we have to decipher, we will do it on this show. Yeah, I'm not sure. gonna lie. It, the moment we start getting sweet, sweet five star ratings, I'm gonna read the shit out of them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, especially if they're indecipherable, bro. I'm on it. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> uh, I I really kind of speaking of. These uh, these replicants that just wanted to live, uh, there is a certain amount of tragedy in the replicant lifestyle that uh, I won't say resonated with me, but like I could I understood, you know, because essentially they were created 
to they were created as slaves and they were given these emotion like emotional capabilities but given a short lifespan so they couldn't develop those emotions yes. which seems unreasonably cruel which is also there's another line you can draw to Alien Covenant where the David model was an earlier model designed and we meet in Covenant another version of David called Walter, who is mm-hmm. a later generation, also played by Michael Fassbender, very similar in most respects, except they removed his ability to create because it made the Davids too unpredictable. Yeah, this is what I don't understand about futuristic robot creators. Okay, Why make them look and feel like us? I, I don't, or especially if you're going to make them stronger and smarter than we are what's what is the purpose of having them being able to essentially uh blend into the rest of humanity just make them just make them look like robots and give them an incapacity for maybe like a a capacity for creative thinking but like not emotion I, I really think it goes back. I mean, it's it's true on a fundamental logic level. Why would you give these machines the ability to think fairly independently and then also make them far harder to spot? It doesn't total unless you are positive that they will never ever turn on you. And even then, it, well, yes, it it does strain credulity a little bit. Except except not for nothing. We're starting to make moves in that direction in our reality, so much so that Elon Musk has called for a ban on killer robots. <laughs> We're there now. We have to institute a ban on killer robots so the killer robots don't rise up and kill us. Yes. But yes, you're right. But I also take it back to this idea of man playing God. Yeah. And if we are to believe that God created us in his own image, it then follows that in playing God, man would create in their own image. I guess so, but if why I have so much issues with the hubris involved in that idea. Yeah. Um I I mean I'm with you as far as the level of hubris there is potentially catastrophic, but I think that's also incredibly human. Got it. I mean, I get it. We give birth to babies and they look like us and you want something that looks like you to extend beyond yourself. Uh but it it seems uh, it seems foolish. Oh, for sure. It absolutely, it absolutely seems foolish to essentially grant sentience to something that will learn exponentially, dang near every second. Right. For sure. Also, we we have a, a bad habit of treating these things like garbage. So we're like, we're gonna make you better than you, but we're gonna treat you like you're uh, the scum of our toes. Is that cool? Is that is that fine with you? And they're like. No, I could crush you in my fingers. Right. I mean, it's completely fine. It's still cruel. It's completely fine as far as the the type of conversation we're having if you build in fail-safes. So right. if you, in, as in the case of Walter, if you strip away their ability to create, by extension, you're stripping away their ability to think too creatively. Mm-hmm. With the replicants, you build in a four-year lifespan. That way they can only accumulate so much experience and by extension, presumably, hopefully, only become so much of a threat long-term. Right. I guess so. Though, and we're, it's because we're gross humans, but um, I feel like if you're going to create something, you would want it to be able to be a part of the world that you're creating in a way that is meaningful and uh, 
ultimately has some form of longevity, not just like, I created this thing. I'm going to make it so it disappears, and then I'll create a new one. Everything is just toilet paper to me. But I, I mean, Isn't that, isn't that what we're doing now with like iPhones? Uh, yeah, there's a leap. I understand there's a right. leap from one to the other, but that's normal. I mean, it's not great. It's certainly far from uh, an ideal functioning corporate mechanism, you know, as a, as a business model. But we do that. We see that now with the technology we have available. I completely buy, especially if, well, in the, in the context of Blade Runner, it seems like the replicants have existed for some time. Right. So there, it's not necessarily a new technology, but I also think the longer that a piece of technology is around, the more disposable it becomes. So it does track even with the reality that we're experiencing. Now, we're in 2017. Yeah, I hope strongly that our 2019 does not look exactly like the 2019 Los Angeles in Blade Runner, though the the neon is very cool. If, if in the next two years, L.A. can be that gorgeously production designed, I'm uh-huh. on board. But if there's fire and smog and killer robots everywhere, I'm less down. But I definitely buy I, I buy what you're describing. I right. buy that even though they look like us, even though they feel like us, they would be seen as less human because in a way they are. Even right. in the aspects where their humanity ironically supersedes our own, they would still be viewed as less human in a way that that parallels racism in many respects. I think a lot of a lot of these threads are picked up far later in the rebooted Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Uh, Ronald D. Moore has talked about how Blade Runner was a massive influence, and you can see the direct connections thematically, and then, of course, the presence of Edward James almost as Gaff. Yeah. In fact, they use in an early scene, I think it's the first scene with M. Emmett Walsh as the police captain, he uses the pejorative term skin jobs yes. to talk about the replicants, which is something, a term that they pick up and use in Battlestar Galactica as well. Mm-hmm. And you can see in Battlestar the evolution and the expansion of a lot of the themes that we're talking about now that are seeded throughout Blade Runner, if not hit on the nose too aggressively. Right. And it's uh, funny that you bring up that scene that with a brand brand Um, Bryant, that's his name Um, because in the voiceover um, there's a, there is a moment where he uses skin jobs and the voiceover says something to the effect of, Brian's the kind of guy who would call black people the N-word. Um, and doesn't, does he, he use says the, he, says, he the, says the word. That's right. I vaguely remember this. Yeah. Um, so fuck that voiceover. Yeah, but, that's uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but that there is, I was, I was gonna so it segue is. into it, that. Yeah. Right. So it is, is a pejorative, it is almost uh, on par with a racial slur in that context. Pretty much. Yeah. And so essentially these replicants who are trying to live longer than four years, it's also their fight to be seen as human or seen as a thing that is worthy of living. Um, and so like they, their struggle, um, represents their, uh, their, I guess the the slaves journey to the north and that they're trying to get back to a di- the a land that accepts them a little bit more uh and so they or, or at least uh be seen in that way and and they go to to their creator who you could if we're doing this parallel it would be like they go they're trying to literally get to the president to go slavery's bad right um and they get there and he's like I can't do anything about it 
Like I've tried this legislation and that legislation and this legislation, but nothing has worked. So I can't do anything about it. And then at that point, you're you're just so full of rage, you poke the, his eyes in. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it actually works surprisingly well as an analog for slavery, despite the fact that your lead replicant is about the most Aryan-looking dude that there is. Right. It it does work surprisingly well. Hey, man, black people can't even get roles as slaves no more. Ooh. Is that... <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Um, Speaking of, there's a, uh, a very good NPR story that came out recently about a woman who was playing a slave in um, a kind of a one of those old timey houses where people go and visit. And it's like a historical perspective on uh, I think it, it was actually uh, George Washington's farm and it walks her through it. She walks us through her experience of having to play that slave and people's reaction to it and what it did to her own psyche. It's really fascinating. I will tweet out the link. Uh, yeah, I, this vaguely rings a bell, too. And I don't think I, I'm sure I maybe saw it and I don't it maybe got lost in a sea of links that I like. I bookmark about 12 things at one time. Yeah, and sometimes I get to all of them. And sometimes I don't know, my browser crashes and I don't get all these tabs back. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, she, she wrote a book, so you may have heard about the book. Um, which I will tweet the link out to as well. Um, so keep a look out on the Missing Outcast Twitter um, for these links. But it's really fascinating. And I think it really, like, uh, I think enhances, if you're viewing Blade Runner through this, through that analog or through this prism, it really enhances that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's what it's like being a slave. Yikes. But again, again, the... Uh, Robot as slave is a concept that has existed, I think, as long as we've been telling stories about robots. Right. In a lot of movies, especially big movies from the 80s, yes, they are uh, more often than not portrayed by the whitest of white people. <laughs> so, so again, uh, that element of it makes the analog maybe a touch uncomfortable, but it is still inescapable. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, I feel like they haven't been very... Sh- at least in the movie, they weren't very shy about drawing the comparison. Like they use the sl- the term slave like a number of times. Yes. It doesn't even have to be specifically like, ah, oh, man, American slavery, but slavery in, in and of itself. Well, let me let me ask, do you feel like it's more? Let's say let's say Roy Batty is played by I was like, who is who would be the analog, uh, a black actor in the 80s? And the first name that popped in my head was Keith David. Now, mostly because I just want to see Keith David in a Roy Batty type role. But let's uh, say it's Keith David, right? Okay. Let's say he's a, he's a black actor in the same role, and they keep hitting the slavery thing over and over and over. Right. More comfortable or less comfortable? Um, it depends on who you are. If you're me, I'm like, apt. Uh, if you are, I think if you are, uh, if you're a white gentleman or gentlewoman, it will be more uncomfortable because you're like, stop throwing that thing that ancestors did in my face. Get over it. Get over slavery. It happened 300 years ago. And you're like, that didn't happen that long ago. And you're like 300 years. And not for another, we could have a whole other conversation about how even 300 years ago is still a second ago in the grand scheme of things. Right. That just happened. (laughs) I mean, it didn't happen while I was here, but no, it just, it just happened. Yeah, I think Louis C.K. Uh, put it in terms of two elderly people's full lifespans. So, like, a person lives until 80, and then another person lives until 80, and that's how long ago it was. Isn't that terrifying? Yes, it's insane. And far, it, 
if if that was a second ago in the grand scheme of things, it was about a quarter second ago that we were we were experiencing the civil rights movement in the fifties and sixties. Yep, and things weren't great then either, and uh, that just happened. Uh huh. And it's not a whole lot. Like it's better. But, like, incrementally now. It's better in that we all can use the same bathrooms. In most places. Well, r- right. Depending on who right. you are and what you are. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I mean, we're ten- we tend not to anymore discriminate who can use what bathroom on the basis of skin color. Yeah. We're really not past the whole bathroom thing, as it turns no, out. Not at all. I mean, we as humans progress in a slow manner and that's that's how evolution is essentially so you you use evolution i feel like we're still even in 2017 when we all have like supercomputers in our pocket we are still hard-coded for tribalism Uh and we are still hard-coded to i think the immediate response most people have to anything that they don't understand is to react negatively and i feel like everybody's got that tendency it's a matter of how you curb that tendency and how open you can keep your mind and how willing you are to learn and be empathetic yeah i actually think there is a direct connection between this and the conversation we're having about the thematics of blade runner mm-hmm. uh but i do see a direct a direct connection between between oppressing a group and then creating a situation where your perceived control over a group leads that group to turn the to turn the tables on you essentially yeah well yes the the more you it's it's like a space displacement the more pressure you put on something the more it is likely to essentially explode from other sides right um the uh the more you tighten your grip tarkin the more star systems will slip through your fingers yeah yeah star wars that's some fucking stupid yep the stupidest um wait i had a stupid joke i was supposed to tell i'll i'll remember it something about oh i remember what um you edward james Almost had a point there. Uh, you almost, Edward James. Uh, your lighting is uh, bad. Maybe you could use a gaff. Yeah. Shop talk, am I right? Rudger, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Welcome aboard. And, and now... Now we're going to be censored by the government <laughs> on the grounds that this is far, far too inane for human consumption. Uh, we were doing so well being substantive, and then we just we had were. to we had to fly the train right off the tracks into the mountain. Mm. Fly the train. Trains fly now. Of course they do. Well, you see Back to the Future Part 3? That's, uh, that's where I learned about trains. Oh. So I, I just assumed that all trains do the fancy thing yeah, is that, that the what, train did. Is that the, the one with the manure? No, that's the first one. Oh, got it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Sweet. Although I suppose because they're in the Old West for the majority of Back to the Future Part 3, there's probably manure all over the place. Probably. I mean, I imagine the whole ground is just manure. They cut the big manure subplot about how man in the in the uh, the alternate steampunk Old West essentially built little robotic poops. Mm-hmm. And, and those poops rebelled. Yes. And they came back to the town looking to exist longer 
and then their creator, who actually was Doc Brown in the past, um, told them that he couldn't do it. And they were like, free us! But their only freedom was death. Oof. Yep. Can you, can, you, can you picture an army of like... Did you see? Did you watch the Pickle Rick episode of Rick yes, and Morty? Yes, I did. So, like, an army of Pickle Ricks once he designs the mech suit for himself, uh-huh. but they're all poops marching on an old western town. I think I've had a dream like that before. Who hasn't? Yeah. This is this is that Jungian collective unconscious thing that we were talking about. Who hasn't had a, a mechanized poop army dream? <laughs> this is the level of discourse you can expect from the Missing Out podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Ah, uh, yeah. Leave a... <laughs> Leave a five-star comment below uh, with a bullet point uh, for every star telling us uh, what do you think that poop thing would look like. Just, just tell us tell us about your feelings. We are so open to – you can up. tweet your fan art at us. I would actually – I would love to see that fan art. If you could render it uh, nicely enough, I might frame that. <laughs> and exp- I have to explain it to everybody, right? But I could be, I could be like, uh, our our art inspired someone else's art, and they'd be like, but it's poops, and I'd be like, exactly. Ah oh, man, um, so do- <laughs> that was a that was a pretty aggressive uh, digression. It was aggressive digression. That's that's what this podcast is about. What is uh, it? It's uh, introspective, retrospectives, and aggressive digression. Yeah, I actually really like that. We could put when we do a whatever the new version of the logo is when we whenever we revamp it make it fancier if if we do then at the top we have one tagline and at the bottom we have the other tagline yeah um all right uh, I'm gonna move into our recommendation section <laughs> <laughs> yeah we spent I feel like we spent a good amount of time talking about the the thematics of the movie and a good amount of time talking about poop monsters yes um actually. Before we do that, just like a three-minute three segment, or not segment, but section about the, the love story between Rachel and, um, and Deckard. Yes. Um, I, I personally, I have the same feelings I did about the first scene that we get with Rocky and Adrian. Um, not the first scene, but that scene where she's in his apartment and Rocky blocks the door. And then, like, forces a kiss on her. And I feel the same way about their, uh, Deckard and, and Rachel, where he, like, starts kissing her face. And she's like, no, 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 no. And she, like, tries to run away. And then he, like, closes the door. And he's like, you give me consent. And she's like, no. And he's like, give it. And she she's like, okay, here's here, have my consent. And then, like. He starts going downtown on her. No, not Silly downtown. Silly That's not how consent works. Right. Um, I, had, I had problems with that scene. Uh, well, yeah, and it, it stands to reason that one would. Now, I do think, again, it tracks with the idea of a noir protagonist as being very morally ambiguous. I think most of us could probably agree that that behavior is super icky regardless of the context. Right. I do think the version of the movie that you're watching does make a difference as far as the context of that scene and the entire relationship because if Deckard is a replicant, even though, yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't behave that way anyway, they're operating on a fairly level playing field, even if he's not aware that he is a replicant. But if he is not a replicant, it becomes a lot ickier because... It, Rachel only has so much 
say, so much control, so much free will. If she is, to use the term, a robot, she is by definition a slave. Right. It makes all of that a lot ickier than if they are both replicants. Yeah. Because essentially he's going, you were made for slavery and I'm going to treat you like a slave. Um, which is rough. Well, and we've seen too in the case of uh, Pris, the Daryl Hannah character. They they make reference more than once to the fact that she's just a pleasure unit. Yeah, she she exists or was designed for one purpose, an icky purpose. Yeah. So we know we know that human beings are using some of these replicants for icky bedroom stuff. Yeah. So it again, it's it really depends on what what prism you're viewing that scene through, what version of the movie you're watching, and how it is contextualized. Now, again, that behavior is gross regardless. <laughs> yeah. But it, it it does make a difference as far as the, the greater reality of the relationship between those two characters. Got it. I think my biggest issue was when he kept yelling, Thomas Jefferson! I'm doing a Thomas Jefferson! I'm a Blade Runner! <laughs> Blade Runner! That's what he, he yells when he's... Right. When he's finishing up. Right. Um, so I felt like that was problematic. Goes, 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 I'm a Blade Runner! (laughs) And credits. Yeah. We just smash cut to credits. Uh Uh-huh. As he's like, he like gives a thumbs up to the camera and it's just like, like, we we smash cut to the credits. And then after a few titles, we cut back to Deckard. And that's when he looks right down the barrel of the camera and gives a big thumbs up. Yeah. And then it freeze frames and the rest (laughs) of the credits play over that. Right. Of course. (laughs) And then at the end of the credits, one more time as like the logo comes up. I'm a Blade Runner. Uh, that I think that's in the missing out cut. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. going to be in uh, in 2049. It's oh. just going to be with the first scene with Ryan Gosling meeting Deckard. It's just going to be that, and they're just trying to yell over each other louder <laughs> and louder and louder. That, but they're like, you know, running each other's blades though, right? Oh, totally. Hell yeah. I don't know what that means, but yeah, totally. <laughs> You'll figure it out. I'll tell you when you're older. Um, okay. So now in the the recommendation segment, <laughs> uh, we talk about uh, if we'd recommend it, and I would. I I think that I would recommend seeing the theatrical cut just for the sake of knowing. Absolutely, it's definitely worth checking out as a novelty. Right, and I think that like having this being the only time I've seen it, um, I think that if if you like uh, if you like happy endings and you and you like a little bit of um, like context for your subtext. Uh, I think that it it plays decently as a as a movie. Like I think if this was my first time, I didn't I didn't know anything about the movie. I wouldn't even really uh, care about the voiceover. Like in that, and, and I'm saying that in that I think that it still plays as a, a decent movie. Uh, knowing that there are other cuts out there with additional subtext and and a more ambiguous ending. Uh is in- interesting to me. I don't know if seeing it will add or subtract to my experience. Fair. And it, it is very tough having only seen one version of the movie to make any type of 
judgment call where that's concerned because you're essentially you're watching it and even though you know you know that other cuts exist you're essentially watching this version in a vacuum having never seen any other version right. I of course would highly recommend Blade Runner uh, but I would recommend checking out the final cut now with the caveat that it took it took me a few times with Blade Runner to really get into it you have to accept that it's not going to be a super fast paced action adventure movie you really have to settle into the tone the mood of it I think uh, on a purely aesthetic level it is one of the most, if, if I can be a little hyperbolic, it is one of the most impressive movies I've ever seen. I think it is one of the best production design movies of all time. I think the look of it, the feel of it, the cinematography, the score, I think is phenomenal. All of that adds up to a very unique experience as far as mood, tone, aesthetics. But on top of that, all of the concepts we've been discussing, all these like really big, heady ideas that I feel like you don't... You, Ridley Scott's one of the only guys I feel like that has ever afforded the budget to tell really cerebral, heady, philosophical stories like this on this scale. Uh, I dig it. Yes. I mean, again, I don't need to sit here and tell people that Blade Runner is a movie you should check out. But I also know I, I would encourage people, even if you've checked it out before and you didn't really feel like it was for you, maybe it was a little bit slow for your taste, you had a hard time getting into it, give yourself uh, give yourself the space of a year and come back. Seriously, I'm being serious. Give yourself the space of a year and come back to it and see, see if you have a different experience with it. And I feel like it, it is a movie that really does reward revisiting it every every so often after you've lived a little bit more after you've seen a little bit more after you've read a little bit more uh i think there's a lot to to be mined there going back over and over again because there's stuff that i when i watched it last night there were new details not necessarily stuff that i'd completely missed before yeah. but things that i hadn't fully appreciated before rewatching it this time. And it is because I've I've given myself multiple bites at the apple over a number of years. Okay. Yeah. I dig that. I yeah, I think that there's definitely because the first time I had seen a part of it, uh I don't think I was able to get into it, and now as I've grown as a human being, um I definitely resonate with it a lot more. I definitely understand the characters and even even with like the voiceover, which gives more context to Gaff's character, um, it it allows everyone to have an arc. Everyone who's there um, essentially lives a full existence until from the beginning to the end of the movie. And as you were saying, the aesthetics are bananas, um, just in terms of uh, the buildings that were created and what LA looks like in 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 that time with all the different language. Um, signage and neons and things of that sort um, that was bonkers and you can also if if nothing else to see that this has uh, influenced so many other different things that you watch like I was watching it uh, from the very first scene and my roommate was in the room and I was like that's the test that they take is just like the test that they do in Orphan Black to figure out if a clone is glitching. The, uh, uh, you're referring to the Voight comp test. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. can see the DNA of Blade Runner on so very many science fiction stories in film and television that came afterwards. Right. So eat, eat for, if aesthetics st you don't care about, if character stuff you don't care about, if uh, noir storytelling you don't care about, it's worth it just to see the origin of a lot of different things that you probably enjoy in popular culture. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So that brings us to the end of this show. Um, 
I am Tari J. Miller. You can find me at Tari J. I am Lex Michael. All of our social media at the Lex Michael. And this is the Missing Out Podcast, where we talk about things you're missing out on and things that we're missing out on. Um, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Missing Out Cast. That's M I S S I N G O U T C A S T. Make sure to subscribe to iTunes if you haven't already, just so you get our uh, show in your feed every Tuesday morning. Uh, and so really quick, if you know, don't if you don't have iTunes, where can people find the show? Um, if they don't have iTunes, they can also find it through the uh, the. Uh, what is it called? The Android Store, um, like the the Google Play podcast section. Um, if you're online, you can also find us on Podbean slash Missing Out Podcast. Um, and if you don't have it, any of those things, hit me up and I'll help you figure it out. Uh, just uh, just either follow and direct message Missing Outcast or hit either of us up on our sweet sweet Twitters. Um, you could also leave it below in the comments of iTunes, leave a five star rating and a bullet bullet point point for for every star. star. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um, they'll, they won't forget that one. Nope. Not at all. Uh, so once again, thank you for listening. We appreciate you guys taking the time to enjoy our, our chats about stuff. Uh, also let us know things that maybe we should check out that we are missing out on. Uh, shoot us a list either in the comments or, uh, on our Twitter. Yeah. I feel like eventually we'll get to a place where if we can engage with listeners a little bit more, they can recommend things that maybe neither one of us has seen. And then we can both sit down to something fresh and have a conversation that way. That'd be dope. I'm a Blade Runner. (laughs) Okay, bye.